broadcasting live from the Raiders practice facility at the Intermountain Healthcare Performance Center. This is the premier destination for an inside look into the Las Vegas Raiders. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor, presented by Tequila Embajador. What's good, Raider Nation? Welcome back to Raider Nation Radio, 920 AM. It is a Tuesday. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor, brought to you by Tequila Embajador. Hope all is well. Watch your calls, 702-365-9200. We're talking about OTAs. We're talking about minicamp, which happens next week. It's a mandatory minicamp. We'll see who's uh, out here for the Raiders. Remember, there's been about a good 83 to 86 players uh, throughout OTAs uh, so far the first uh, uh, two weeks, anyway, uh, of OTAs. We'll find out tomorrow when we're back out there uh, as a group, the media, uh, to see um, what that number looks like uh, tomorrow. But it's been really good attendance so far uh, for the Raiders uh, going back to a couple of weeks ago, talking to you know some of their veteran players um, Richie Incognito talking about how important this time of year was uh, for this group in particular. It's it's important for everybody across the league. Um, by the way, you're in the huddle with Vinny Bonson. You're brought to you by Tequila Embajador. It's it's important for every team in the NFL. Uh, I know we get caught up in the whole voluntary and all that nonsense. Um, if you want to be good as an individual, if you want to be good as a team, um, and let's face it, this is about – careers for individual players. This is about winning football games for teams collectively. So there's an individual and collective component um, that's involved in this. You want to push every possible button at your disposal to be as good as you possibly can be. That's what professionals do. Uh, Yeah, there are definitely, no question about it, certain players that get to a point in their career where, you know, it Completely understand if you want to stay away. Uh, it would be great if you were here, but you know, you've know you proven over your career uh, that you know how to be ready, that you know how to take care of yourself, that you know how to hit the playbook, uh, that you when, you, when, the, when it's, the lights go on in training camp and then the games, you're accountable, you produce, there's no worries. There's guys that get to that point uh, in their careers And if they want to stay away from OTAs, if they feel like they've got a better plan individually, then there's teams that respect that kind of clout, that respect that sort of a track record. But even in those cases, the vast majority of players still want to be part uh, of this because, again, whether it's striving to get a new contract or as a team striving to get better, to take that next step, you know, the Raiders have been close uh, in terms of positioning themselves to make runs at the playoffs over the second half of the season in the last two years, six and four in 2018, uh, excuse me, six and four in 2019, six and three in 2020. 
things fell apart in the second half of the season. We don't need to uh, regurgitate all of that. It is what it is. But the Raiders want to make sure that that doesn't happen, right? So whether it's individuals getting better to do their part in making sure that that doesn't happen uh, or the team itself kind of coming together collectively, as Richie Incognito explained that this Raiders team did shortly after voting not to be, participate in these OTAs and said, yeah, forget the vote. Um, we're not going to squander this opportunity uh, to get better. We're going to be out there practicing. It's a competitive disadvantage if we don't because there are going to be other teams that do. I, didn't even, I don't even think that that necessarily needed to be explained. Um, I think that you know, it, it was definitely part of the argument for practicing, for showing up for OTAs, for participating in OTAs, no doubt about it. It makes a lot of sense. It's kind of self-explanatory. But I think if you would have just gauged each player individually without even giving them you know, any kind of an explanation and said, hey, do you or do you not want to be participating in OTAs? Now, the human side of us is like, I'd rather be you know, on some beach right now. Of course. But the mature, responsible, professional uh, side of most people that achieve in life understand I'm not satisfied. I'm not content. I, there's still that I, the, more that I want to do as an individual and certainly as a team and as a group. Yes, even though 100% of the world would rather be laying on a beach somewhere, it's time to take advantage and get better and uh, utilize every mechanism that's at our disposal, disposable, disposal to get ready, to be ready, to get better, to improve individually and as a team. So I don't even think that the Raiders needed to be told as individuals or it needed to even be explained to them like, hey, there's other teams that are going to be um, participating in OTAs and, and they're going to be out there. We can't let them get an edge uh, over us. We need to do the same thing. I think that it was beyond that. I think that a lot of these young players, because it's been frustrating these last couple of years. It's frustrating. I don't think it's frustrating when you're sitting at six and three and you finish the season at eight and eight. Uh, or you're sitting at six and four the year before and you finish the season at seven and nine, you don't think that's frustrating to professional football players. You don't think it's, it's, it's frustrating to go on Twitter and to go on social media and have people criticizing you and pointing fingers at you and saying you're not good enough, you know, uh, you, you, you blew it, you choked, whatever the case might be. You know, not to say that that's what drives players, but it's certainly part of the equation when you haven't reached your goals, when you have fallen short, frustratingly so. And you do hear the criticism and you do hear the backlash. It just motivates you even more to want to get in there and, and change course and make sure those things don't happen again. And so, uh, you know, for those reasons, it's not really all that surprising the great attendance that the Raiders have gotten uh, in OTAs. And I think that, you know, just from my vantage point, seeing where certain players are physically compared to last year, we talked about Damon Arnett, we talked about Henry Ruggs, uh, both looking bigger and stronger and, you know, more explosive. They heeded the words and the advice uh, of, you know, the Raiders staff, Mike Mayock, who, know, told both of those players, uh, as I'm sure John Gruden did as well, like, here, here's your checklist. 
going into the off season. This is what you need to focus on. These were this, these are the things that we really liked. Uh, these are the things that we feel need to be addressed. And it's not unusual for that to be the case in a young player's career. We've talked about it all the time. Heck, you don't think that when Mitch Kupchak and Phil Jackson sit down with Kobe Bryant after each season, hey, you're the perfect player, don't do anything this offseason. No, it was, hey, you need to, you know, it might be helpful. Not that Kobe ever needed anybody to tell him what he needed to work on. He was fanatical in that regard. But even he was given a checklist of things to maybe address um, and work on. That's just the nature of that business. And a lot of times it comes from within. You know, all these guys are here because they've been high achievers uh, and winners in their life and self-starters in their life. Uh, So it was never really questioning the work ethic or the care of of a Henry Ruggs or a Damon Arnett, it was basically just, hey, this is the reminder. This is what you need to, to work on. You see them come in in OTAs and you eyeball it and you're like, okay, they heeded the advice. Um, they, they put the necessary work in. They look better. They look bigger and f- more physical and stronger. We'll see, obviously, how that translates uh, onto the field when the lights come on, but step one was completed. And you look at uh, a guy like Clee Farrell, who did the same thing going in from year one to year two, and I presume year two to year three, you know, there were other things that he was focusing on. He's talked about it, uh, kind of perfecting or improving some of the areas where he's been quote unquote uh, deficient in, uh, or less than uh, spectacular in the pass rush, understanding the mental side uh, of what his responsibility is, uh, responsibilities are, um, what his responsibilities, what 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 in terms of beating a, a, an offensive tackle, the mental aspect of that, the chess game that goes into that. We've talked about this before. It's not just you know being stronger than the next guy or being faster than the next guy, although that does help. You know, that's when you start talking about elite, elite people when they have a size and speed advantage. And then on top of that, you know, our Albert Einstein when it comes to pass rushing, which the great ones are, they combine all of those things. Um, Clee Farrell definitely has a necessary strength. He's definitely fast enough, quick enough, um, powerful enough. And now he just needs to kind of understand a little bit better the nuances of, of pass rushing. And, you know, to hear him talk about understanding that and the self-recognition of that and vowing to be better at that. I've always said this about Cleve Farrell. Whatever his ceiling is, and we're probably closing in on truly figuring that out, whatever it is, Cleve Farrell is going to get there, whatever that ceiling might be. And I know that it kind of, you know, sometimes gets held against him that, you know, he was the fourth pick overall and therefore he must be a, um, a superstar player right off the bat or a Hall of Famer. He may not ever get there, but whatever the ceiling is, and by the way, being drafted fourth overall was not his thing. You know, he didn't control that. He was the fourth pick overall. And 
but I guess the more important part of it is that whatever that ceiling is, and I believe that it's a pretty high ceiling, he's going to get there because he cares. He truly does. And he's going to put the necessary work in and he's going to put the necessary dedication in. Uh, and so and it'll be interesting this year to see if he gets closer to that ceiling. I think he will. You're, we're going to go out to the Raider Nation listener line. Raider 27 wants to talk about the Raiders. How you doing, Raider 27? Hey, Vinny. What's up, man? I'm good, brother. Uh, How are you? Good. I'm listening to your my dog keeps wanting to help us. So I'm listening to your your monologue and, and again I I I keep agreeing with you on everything and I know that I, I feel like I should disagree sometimes. <laughs> it's but, all good if you do. You know? I I know it's all good if I do, but the thing of it is is I watch a lot of all twenty I pay attention to what's going on and I I don't wanna I don't wanna say it, but I've I've been in a situation where I've actually known professional NFL players well enough to really talk about their daily lives. Right. So I know that you know what you're talking about because they told me they're they're the same way. They say the same thing. Josh Jacobs does not need to be in OTA's voluntary camp. There's no reason for him to be there. He's just taking up a space for a young running back uh, let's use Jalen Lashari as an example. If Jacobs is there, then Josh, Josh, uh, Jalen doesn't get those reps in the very beginning that open people's eyes. You know, so you miss out on some players. The defensive players certainly I should be there. You you brought up Clee Farrell. Clee Farrell was never drafted to be. Uh, uh, Khalil Mack, uh, 10, 15 sack a year guy. He was drafted to be a character role model for everybody else on the defensive side of the ball and to anchor that side against the run and make sure that side is anchored. And he's done exactly what they drafted him to do. There's, I, I know people like, well, he's, he's only got, he doesn't have any sack. They didn't draft him to go get a whole bunch of sacks. It would be nice if he got seven or eight sacks a year. That would be great for Cleveland. He was never drafted to go get 15 sacks a year. He was drafted to be the stabilizing force of that defense, to be the foundation of that defense, to be the one that works harder than everybody else on that defense. He was drafted to be the stalwart, to be the guy that everybody else can go to and look at and say, well, you know, Clee's out here doing all this extra work. I'm going to be out here doing all this extra work. And oh, by the way, you know, after the after the third week of OTAs, nobody cares what round you were drafted in anymore. That's for the media to talk about. The football team could absolutely care less where you're drafted in, you know, a month down the road. They want to see what you can do. You know, so, you know, I don't, I, some of these guys on Twitter, man, I wonder if they really work or have jobs or do anything because it seems <laughs> like all they do is complain about about players that are, I guarantee you, putting in more physical work every day than they put in this year. Yeah, so, and you know, in, in in and I appreciate the call, Raider twenty seven, as as always. Okay, thanks, um, man. Yeah, you got it, brother. Um, you know, in in, in Clee's case, people can can say what they want, and they often do, uh, regardless of what you know the information is or the facts are. I guess uh, Clee Farrell was. For a long 
point of a long long stretches of last season, the best defensive player on the Raiders. I know that he didn't get sacks, uh, but in terms of efficiently rushing the passer, he was better than other guys on the, on, on the defensive line. No disrespect to anybody else on the defensive line. Um, he was more efficient. Uh, he was better against the run. Obviously, he graded out well. He was that he was for, consistently when he was healthy and before COVID uh, took a, a good bite out of him. He was ranked right outside the top ten among defensive ends in the NFL. That's the fact of the matter. And, and Raider twenty seven is right. Uh, there was never any illusions from the Raiders that he was going to be a fifteen sack guy. There just weren't. And but that doesn't make him not worthy of praise, not worthy of, hey, Clee Farrell's one of the bright spots you know, on this defense because he is, and I think he's going to continue to be. Sacks will come for Clee Farrell, but there's also other players that need to step it up in terms of that, uh, whether it's in the interior of the defensive line, uh, whether it's opposite Cleve Farrell, and I think that the, the Raiders did a made a really good move in bringing in Yannick Ngakwe, um, who is one of the better pass rushers in the, in the NFL. I think Max Crosby uh, returning to health, being healthy, and I think his role being a little bit more defined, and I think his snap count going down is going to increase his efficiency. Uh, I think that... Carl Nassib can get back on track. He needs to get back on track. Obviously, if he could just go back to what he's done in the past, um, he's going to give you production off the bench, and that's really all you're asking him to do. Um, you're not asking him to be a superstar by any stretch of the imagination. He just needs to be an asset in the pass rush rotation, which he's been in the past and should be again here with the Raiders. So when we talked about this yesterday, when you start adding it all up, you know, Cleve Farrell should be, when, he, when he's played, what, he had four sacks his first year, five sacks his first year, something or, or around there. Um, he can get to five, six, seven sacks. I think he can get, I think he can get to seven sacks playing, uh, you know, uh, uh, that defensive end role that he plays, but then also sliding inside on known passing situations where, you know, maybe Malcolm Kuntz is on his hip or Carl Nassib is on his hip. Uh, and then on the other side, you know, Max Crosby. Uh, there you go. So he, he had four and a half sacks his rookie year. Uh, he played less football last year because of injuries and because of COVID-19. There's no reason with a better Clee Farrell, somebody that understands uh, pass rush a little bit more. There's no reason if he plays six or 17 games this year that he shouldn't have about six, seven sacks this year. That would be a nice number for Clee Farrell. When you throw in also, you know, the eight to 10 that Yannick Ngakwe can get, the eight to 10 that Max Crosby can get, uh, the five maybe that a Carl Nassib can get, the four to six that a Kuntz can get. Uh, Darius Phylon in his career when he's played is about a four or five uh, sack kind of a guy. So there's another four to five sacks. Solomon Thomas should come up with a couple of sacks this year. Uh, Quinton Jefferson should get three sacks or so this year. He typically does. So you start adding all that up, and all of a sudden, like we talked about yesterday, that's 30 or so sacks from the defensive line. They had 14 and a half last year. They'd be more than doubling their sack total. And that doesn't even get into what we talked about yesterday again and, and, and continue to stress just 
the effect that getting to the quarterback has or even just getting near the quarterback and putting consistent, more consistent pressure on him. If the Raiders can get that turned around from that defensive line and if you just look at the people that we're talking about, the players that we're talking about, and look at their track records, there's no reason to, to, to believe that they can't get collectively to 30 or so sacks this year. And then you add in what Corey Littleton might do, what Nicholas Morrow might do, uh, Jonathan Abram, whoever that box safety is going to be, rushing the passer. Uh, there's Gus Bradley, you know, brings guys off the edge of, uh, for the cornerback position time to time. So, uh, you know, you might be looking at a couple of sacks from, from a cornerback, uh, three sacks from Jonathan Abram. You know, a couple of sacks from Corey Littleton, a few, a couple of sacks from from Nicholas Morrow, and all of a sudden, there's your forty or so sacks for a team that had twenty one and a half last year. It's a huge jump, and between the sacks, sometimes the fumbles that that's going to cause, sometimes the errant passes that get thrown because guys are in quarterback's face and they're throwing off their back foot or they're throwing sideways, trying to make a play, they make a mistake, all of a sudden. You know, one's going to the house on a touchdown uh, interception for a pick six, or the ball goes flying up in the air, and there's Trayvon Morig <laughs> back there waiting for it to come down like a center fielder, and boom, there's another interception. Oh, there's Trayvon Mullen picking one off because uh, the quarterback didn't throw as accurately as he normally. I mean, there's all kinds of good things that can happen when you get a pass rush, when you get a more consistent pass rush. And we've talked about this so many times, even at the Raiders' highest point last year, there was never, ever, not one time, was there any delusions that there was a lot of work that still needed to be done. Even at 6-3, and three, nobody in this building that I talked to was like, oh, everything's great. On the contrary, a lot of work still needs to be done. Got to get that pass rush fixed. Got to force more turnovers. Got to get the other team off the field uh, on third down. Somebody asked me on, uh, I did a Q&A for uh, the Las Vegas Review Journal today, and somebody on Twitter asked me, it was a valid question, hey, do you think John Gruden, do you think Gus Bradley helped John Gruden uh, self-scout you know, this year, you know, based on last year, what the Raiders did last year, do some self-scouting to try to, you know, uh, make sure that the Raiders don't repeat some of the mistakes that they made last year. And, and you know, I yes, self-scouting happens all the time. Your self-scouting, your, your analytics department, your own people during the season, you're, there's self-scouting going on. You don't want to get into um, – patterns that are easily detectable by the other team. You don't want to get into habits that other teams can pick on. You have a group of people in the building that are making sure that you're not doing that. And then also, hey, where are we strong? Where are we deficient? Where can we get better? All of those things. But the point was, was John Gruden didn't, any, didn't need anybody to help himself scout. He knew what the problems were last year. It was getting to the quarterback. It was creating more pressure on the quarterback. It was forcing more turnovers. It was getting teams off the field more often on third down. Yes, there are some things offensively that needed to be addressed. Got to get better in the red zone. Got to score more touchdowns in the red zone. Got to improve the run game, the efficiency of the run game. None of those things uh, were being neglected or have been neglected. But when it comes to self-scouting for the Raiders, the problems are pretty darn obvious. Getting to the quarterback, creating pressure on the quarterback, 
creating more turnovers, and getting teams off the field on third down more consistently. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor, brought to you by Tequila Embajador. Interact with the show. Text Vinny at 69187 or tweet at him at Vinny Bonsignor. This is In the Huddle with Raiders beat writer Vinny Bonsignor on Raider Nation Radio 920 AM. What's good, Raider Nation? Welcome back to Raider Nation Radio 920 AM. It is a Tuesday. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor brought to you by Tequila Embajador. What is it, game five tonight for the game Golden five. Knights? 2-2, you surprised? Oh, by the way, we're talking to Eddie Pascal from uh, Raiders.com. Uh, he was nice enough to join us in studio. In the studio, I know, nice it's tremendous. I know. Um, so, series is tied 2-2. I, that yeah. first, those first couple of games didn't look like the, the uh, Golden Knights. I keep saying Kings because, you know, I'm still in Los Angeles time. But anyway, the Golden Knights. Um, but they battled back. They did. Again, with an assist from the Raiders, by the way. We yes. can't overlook that. No, certainly not. And according to my calculations, Uh-oh. and admittedly, math is not my strong suit. I've never pretended that it is. <laughs> but according to my calculations, in the playoffs, famous last words, the uh, the Golden Knights are undefeated when they have a Raider. What's it called? The, the proper term? They turn crank the siren? Or yes. Do it? Yeah. Right. Whenever they There's have some a Raider. cranking going Yes. On. Whenever they have a Raider do it, they yep. have not last, lost in the postseason, I, I can't account for the regular season record, but I do know in the postseason they're undefeated. But uh, in terms of, like, I'm a very novice hockey fan, right? right? So I, in the spirit of full transparency, I hop on board when the of playoffs course. come around. Of course. You, know you have to. Yeah. Like, 80, you know, however many games they play, it's a lot for me, and you know, the seasons overlap a little bit. So, But when the playoffs come, I'm a firm believer there's not much better than playoff hockey. Yes. So it has been so much fun to watch. Uh, I think for me, and we talked about this a while ago, but... For being from Northern California, my wife and I, when we came out here a little over a year ago, we were just so shocked, but in a good way, yeah. how hockey crazy this town is. You know, we're in our neighborhood and, and you know, people have the, the pennants and the windows and the signs and the lawn. And you're like, oh, this is, this is a deal out here. Like, right. No disrespect to the Sharks, but like when you're in the Bay Area, there are not a lot of houses that are repping the San Jose Sharks. Right. And so it's such a different uh, product out here. It's so cool. I still got to get down there to T-Mobile and catch a game. But Same here. this series has been so much fun to watch. Just for and, and admittedly, I'm not a big hockey strategy guy. Right. I'm like, gosh, these guys are so fast. This guy seems a little bit stronger. And they do it all on skates, which is incredible. But it's been it's been a lot of fun to watch this series. And yeah, I guess game five tonight. Yes. And then we'll have, we will have a game six guaranteed on Thursday. Right. If my, if my calculations are correct. Yes, you, you got to win. It's the you first best of four. Of seven, right? First of four. You know, when I worked for the Lakers, we had a lucky charm in Jeffrey Osborne, the singer. Mm. Every time he sang the national anthem, the Lakers would win. So they would like save him for key key moments. Like if it, if it's the Celtics, Jeffrey Osborne was singing. He's the coming national. to town. If it was a pivotal game in a playoff, hey, get Jeffrey. He lived in Chatsworth, so uh, you know, get him on, get him over here. We need him to sing the national anthem tonight. So. I can see at this point now, they can't tempt fate, right? They, they got to bring someone in. Right. So let me ask you this. Let me flip the script on you. Go ahead. I know this is your show. But <laughs> it is. We were talking about it where who's got to be the next Raider up that's going to crank that siren? Because like you said, if the silver and black vibe is going for you, you and you need a win, who's next up? Because you've done you Derek double it up. and Max. 
Do you double it up? Do you just go is back? Is that allowed? To, go back to the well. I, wh- I guess why wouldn't no it? Rules, sure. I, this, how about this? Try this one on for size. How would you feel about Richie Incognito? I'd love Richie. I feel like Richie would be a great guy to get that crowd hyped up. Yeah, a big, strong dude, high energy guy. I feel like he'd be a great one to, to kind of crank that side and get the golden. I think Richie going. would be fantastic. Uh, let's see, we've had Max Crosby, we've had Derek, had Abram. Jonathan Abram. Yeah. Those are three high-strung guys, too. Like, yeah. when they get after it, they get oh, after yeah. it. Like, I don't think a lot of people know this, but, like, when you watch the videos before games with the Raiders, and sometimes Derek is, uh, you know, in the middle, speaking, yep. screaming, yelling. You know, I know that Derek is, you know, he's got a – he's that quarterback, you know, you've got that measured kind of a – Very poised. Personality, poised. But – and I'm trying to think of other quarterbacks in the NFL who get – he gets fired up. Mm-hmm. Derek Carr gets fired. I will never forget the first time I saw him in a Raider uniform. It was in Oxnard, California. They're practicing against the Dallas Cowboys. It was his rookie year. And just to paint a picture, I don't know if you were there. This, this was So I the Oxnard experience was just as I was beginning my – I mean, my it was the Dallas Cowboys home yeah. practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And ironically, it was where the Raiders used to practice when they were in Los Angeles. But anyway, just to paint a further picture, there were probably three fights in that particular on that particular afternoon. In fact, trying to remember the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, it was the wide receiver um, from Des Bryant mm-hmm. lost a like eighteen thousand dollar something or other. That when I had to do a radio show right after that practice. All right, so for two hours. It, by that time, the players had dressed, gotten, you know, ready. There's Des Bryant, like on the 50-yard line with a Dallas Cowboys, you know, equipment. Staff and he's looking They're for looking, it? Yeah, well, oh, and gosh. I'm walking past him. What, what are you guys looking for? And he's like, I just lost a freaking, oh, you know. Oh, man. So, yeah, I hope you found it. But anyway, so it was a very, very, very spirited practice. And this is Derek's rookie year. And... You know they're they're scrimmaging. It wasn't a full on tackle, but it was it was getting there. Yeah. You know, and he ends up driving the field, scoring a touchdown, and the reaction from Derek Carr was like that he had won the Super Bowl. I mean, he was pumped up, and I was like, oh, this guy's got a little. Yeah, fire I mean, he's, to him. he's a competitor. I think that's one the word that we use all the time here. We're like Derek is a competitor, and, and you know. You get it in that practice, right? You see it in the joint practices. And I think that seeing someone, especially at that point in camp, you know that you want to see someone that's not on your team. Right. You want to see a oh, different, yeah. you want to see some different laundry out there. But regardless if it's that, if it's a preseason game, obviously we've had, we've been lucky enough in the past couple years to play some meaningful games in December, January time. Like he gets amped up for those. But I think what's great about Derek is every time that you do see that version of Derek, it's always in control. Yeah, And because, definitely. I mean, look, there's guys around the league, and this isn't pointing fingers or saying anything bad, but there are guys who at times let that emotion, let that moment consume them, and then all of a sudden you're playing out of control. You're right. not doing exactly what you need to be. But Derek, I think, has done an incredible job his entire career, but really I think the past couple of years in particular, of harnessing that energy and having that ultra focus while still being incredibly pumped up and incredibly like the rah-rah, here we go, it's time to get this, these points on the board. Right. And, you know, when you, when you tra- trace back uh, his – past you know he wasn't the five-star recruit he wasn't the four-star recruit i remember the first time i ever really even knew that he existed sorry derek but i was covering high school sports in the san fernando valley 
and uh, his team from Bakersfield came down and played, or, or one of our teams went up to go play him. But it was like, Derek Carr, wait, is that David? David? Yeah, that David, that's David Carr's uh, you know, brother. I think they won. I think they beat one of our teams. Um, but that's when he was on the radar. Then I saw him at Fresno State against USC in the Las Vegas Bowl. And uh, I know he loves Fresno State, but even he would admit this, there was a talent discrepancy. Sure. It was USC sure. and a bad USC team because that's why they were in the Las Vegas Bowl against a conference winner in Fresno State. Long story short, they were in over their head, Fresno State. Mm-hmm. But And he got beat up in that game. But he kept getting up, kept getting up, kept getting up. And I was like, hey, this, I, this guy's got a little something, something. And then a few months later is when I saw him uh, in, that, in that training camp. So Let me ask you this, Vinny. Who's the toughest quarterback that you've seen? In terms of, I'm not saying the most talented, the guy with the best arm strength, but a dude who got hit 10 times, got hit hard 10 times. What, what, what level are we talking about? I don't get Toughest okay. one. That, yeah, it could be a high school kid for all This is going to blow you away. All right, hit me. Go watch um, the, the Rams quarterback that just, got, um, that just got traded to the Lions. Goff. Go watch Jared Goff's freshman tape at Cal. It was a horrendously bad football team. They had just switched systems, like it was that uh, red gun something mm-hmm. or other. So there wasn't a lot of blocking going on. Everybody was in pass patterns for him. And he got the you-know-what kicked out of him. But he kept getting up. And that was one thing I remember telling Rams fans, you know, when they were starting to zero in on Jared Goff, like, go watch the tape. There's nobody tougher. And he doesn't look it at all. Sure. He's very low-key uh, and chill. But tough as they come. So he, just that year alone, because many people would have just given up at that point. And, he, you know, he stuck around, and you know this, being from the Bay Area, he saw the turnaround. And, you know, by the time he finished up, they were a pretty decent football program by the time he finished up. They came from the depths of... What? <laughs> the Pac-12. I, I always think about this one, the one that, that always gets me. And I, I've talked to a couple of our buddies in the locker room, but you talk about these guys that like you said, like Goff, who just get hit over and over and over. And you know what's coming, right? Like you're not under any false illusion that, you know, when I go in on this Saturday and I'm at Memorial Stadium, I'm going to come home with a clean jersey. Right. But the one that gets me all the time is if you're a running back, and I suppose if you're a quarterback or a receiver too, but getting tackled in the shins to me yeah. just feels like the most, oh my God, like even just like saying it out loud. I'm like, if I took one shot to the shins, <laughs> it's over for me. Yes. It's done. I'm done. I'll see you next week. And at least from a running back's perspective, they know that they're going to get hit. Sure. If you look at so often, quarterbacks are just, they have no idea it's coming. And that's, you know, you know it's in the back of your yeah, mind. Yeah, you can feel it a you little can bit. You feel it, yeah. but there are times when it's just completely out of the blue and that's a shock. There was one of UCLA's old football coach, and I think he got in big trouble for this. But during practice, if the quarterback got hit, at, toward the end of practice, he would take those offensive linemen, stand him up in a passing you know, position, and have people just drill him in the back and say, now you see, I'm thinking it's a yeah. little bit barbaric sure. uh, for me. But, yeah, I think Jared Goff was one of the toughest. Um, you you got to look at back in the day, Jim Plunkett got yeah. the stuffing beat out of him. He was a broken man by the time he came. Yeah, to friends the of the program, Jim Plunkett. Yes, uh, there you go. And he would tell you that, and they needed to get him uh, back up and running. Marcus Mariota. Marcus Mariota is one of the toughest guys out there. I mean, he took a beating in Tennessee. Uh, Cam Newton, believe it or not, I believe that Tam- – I, I think the NFL and referees in general did him a disservice earlier in his career. There were shots that he was – and they were supposed to be protecting the quarterback. Um, but I felt like he was 
for whatever reason, they, maybe they just felt he was bigger and stronger than everybody else, said, yeah, you could take it. Um, so I think he's one of the toughest. You're, what about you? I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, one of the guys that comes to mind is, is obviously Marcus yeah. Mariota. I mean, seeing what he went through at Oregon as well. I mean, obviously not, yeah. not to the Goff status where he was on a really, thankfully a lot of really, really good Oregon teams. But Mariota strikes me as a, as a tough guy. I mean, Plunk is a great example. Yeah. I mean, you watch some of those old, and we're lucky enough here in-house to have access to like oh, all yeah. these incredible just – you know, you'd bite your arm off to see this this type of footage from when Plunk was playing. And the way that he got hit, how he got hit, and the fact that we were talking about, he's going to get up every single time. Yes. I mean, he is like, and, and being lucky enough now to, in our past couple of years, get to work with Plunk, you know, as a, as a member of our broadcast team and to come in and do the shows. And some of the stories that he tells, uh. I mean, he has told us, you know, dozens, a lot of which are not radio appropriate. Exactly. Sure. But there's just, there's one in particular that always sticks out that Plunk told us. And I think it was during a regular season game. But long story short, he had broken, I think it was either a bone in, in his hip or somewhere in like the hip region. He, something was not right. right. And so he was getting these shots to just be able to go through practice and everything. And, you know, he tells us, he's like, oh, I did this for six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it was. And it's incredible to think, like, that was just his every day. Right. Like, that wasn't like, oh, this is the Super Bowl. You got to be ready to go, Jim. No. This is like mid-October, exactly. and he's got practice at 2 in the afternoon. And he, yeah, I mean, I think Plunk, for me, will always be kind of the, the epitome of that Iron Man, the epitome of that tough-as-nails kind of dude. Have you and, been uh, watching the, uh, the show on Vice? About the NFL, the dark side. No, uh, I haven't. I, I haven't. I don't know if recommend it or not, but uh, one of the stories that they that they recently did, Bill Romanowski oh, sure. was yeah. a big part of it. And wow, it's, I mean, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean. Like, <laughs> what a character, first yeah, of all. Yeah, seriously, seriously, what a character. It's, it's so funny, too where, too, where it's like, especially, you know, coming out of COVID, right, where all of us are like, we have a million things on our Netflix queue. Right. We're like, yes. oh, is this one on Amazon? Is this one on HBO? But there's so much good stuff out there that, yeah, I got to add that one to the list, and I'll, I'll put it on there for sure. So let me ask you this. When you guys, we talked about joint practices. That's where Derek Carr, um, you know, leading the, the Raiders in a scrimmage against the Cowboys, uh you know, scored a touchdown, and it was like the Super Bowl, and it showed that it meant a lot to him. But when when your team goes to a, to a, 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 you know, whether it's a joint practice or another stadium for a game against another team, what's the competitive nature like between the social media? Oh, and, man, that's a great question. Are you uh, looking at, well, come on now, be yeah, honest. I are mean, you look, looking at other sites going, gosh, God. No, of course. I mean, a thousand percent, right? I mean, like, look, obviously what we do. Why on we do? I know. Why exactly. we think what, of we, this? what we do on Sunday isn't going to affect the score on the game. I right. think that's always what we kind of keep in mind. We tell people, listen. Regard if we have the best day ever, I mean it doesn't necessarily equate to a Raiders. Right. But I think of co- I mean of course we always compare ourselves to what people are doing because a lot of what we do is is staying ahead of the curve. Right. Yeah. A lot of us is like, a lot of what we do is being on the forefront of of whether it's this new social platform, if it, it's trying something different, it's getting a new camera, and, you know, a lot of experimentation. So I think it does us a disservice collectively. It does the, our fans a disservice if we're not locked in to seeing what other people right. are doing. And I will say this that. We have a lot of friends around the league, right? And I think that's one of the great things about doing what we do is you find your counterparts at the Chiefs or at the Broncos or the Packers, whoever it is. But I will say it's a lot of fun when you can be like, hey, you remember week seven when we (laughs) took that one? Right. It's a lot of fun. Well, um, who started the trend? Because this is where I started noticing, like, the one-upsmanship that can happen uh, in what you guys do. And it might have been with – the schedule release. Like, that's become a whole new... It's a, it's a Hollywood yes. production now. 
And and I think what's great though is that you do get to see how creative people around the league right. are. Yeah. I mean, listen, I will put our schedule release video with Seawood up against anyone's in right. the NFL, right. right? But you get to see how like how many just dozens of really creative folks are out there that like you watch someone you're like that is a really cool like I never in a million years would have thought of that and you get to see these people kind of flex their creative muscle and it's a lot of cool for us to see I mean just as like a fan of cool stuff it's a lot of fun to see that kind of stuff happen what are you on your social on your Twitter what are you million you're over well over a million oh yeah 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 that's I always look at that too I mean there's and and there's a lot that goes into that though right I mean there's the success of the team there's also like you know, you look at, at teams that have been around that are established, and that has a lot to do with it too. For sure. Well, but, brand. I mean, yeah, and the, the brand Raiders awareness. I'm an international brand, and and that that goes into it as well. But uh, it is it is. I will say it is a lot of fun to get to see what your friends around the NFL right. are doing. But it's even more fun when you one do something that you feel is a little bit cooler than them, or your team wins on Sunday. Now we're getting ready for um, the new season. And so the the Raiders, the players, the coaching staff, they're in um, OTAs right now. Training camp is just ahead, a month or so away. Um, where are you guys kind of like in the OTA phase right now of yeah, what I mean, you're planning? Because I know you yeah. got big You have to have big Yeah, plans. I mean, we were talking about this before we came on where it's been an incredibly busy kind of stretch for us, right? Uh, it's There's a lot going on. And we use, you know, we use this opportunity very much like the players do. Let's try stuff out. Let's experiment. Let's see what sticks. Let's see what – if there's a time that we want to try to do things, this is the time to do it. Right. Because when we get to regu- the regular season, we get to week one, you know, I guess, quote unquote, like the team, like we got to be ready to rock. Right. Like we're not really doing a ton of, oh, let's see if this works. So this is the time that we do a lot of that kind of stuff, especially when the guys get out of here in, gosh, a little over a week now, which is crazy. Right. We use that month as well, that in between that late June to mid July, like that is a huge month for us just in terms of planning, of getting something. things ready. And yeah, go ahead. Well, because I, I saw an interview with Dale Earnhardt Jr. And they asked him, why is the Daytona 500, the Super Bowl? And it's, it kicks off the season, yeah. right? Uh, and what you just said kind of struck me, uh, you know, and reminded me of that because he said, he goes, it's weird, obviously, that our Super Bowl is the first, you know, uh, race of the of the season. But you have to understand that we've been planning for this race for months and months and months, strategizing, building the perfect car, um, getting everything right. And after that, it's a week-to-week basis. So what you're saying right now is once the season gets on, boom, you know, it's – Crazy. Yeah, we're, we're plug and play. We're like, yes. hey, we, we know what we're doing. We know the formula. Obviously, things change a little bit based on, you know, wins and losses. Right. If you have a, you know, a, a last second Hail Mary, right, that's going to change what you do for those next couple of days. But yeah, I mean, we feel by and large, I think one thing that's great about us is we feel incredibly prepared by the time we get to week one. And there are going to be things that are going to come up regardless of how many plans. We have plans A to X. It's right. going to be plan Z is what happens sometimes. But yeah, this is a huge, this is a huge time of the year for us to get ready. And, and hopefully by the time week one comes comes around. We got a lot of cool stuff that people are excited to watch. No question about it. I can't wait to see it. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor, brought to you by Tequila and Bonsignor, joined by our great friend and guest, Eddie Pascal from Raiders.com. You're listening to Raider Nation Radio 920 AM. Now, back to your host, Vinny Bonsignor. Our thanks again to uh, Eddie Pascal from uh, Raiders.com. Always a good uh, time to visit with him and what they're doing here um, at Raiders.com. The social media team, all of that. And uh, it can get pretty competitive, as he, uh, as he mentioned, and rightfully so. But there's a lot of respect. And there is, you know, you can see 
uh, across the league, across sports, uh, the creativity. Um, and it's, it's fun to see it. Uh, that's displayed by teams and their social media teams. And, um, you know, we see it all the time with the schedule release and all the work that goes into that and the creativity that goes into that. It's fun. This is, the enter- this is an entertainment uh, type ordeal here uh, in professional football, professional sports. There's a lot at stake, obviously. There's winning and losing and emotions and passion. Uh, but it's also supposed to be fun. And uh, guys like Eddie and, and what they're doing here uh, at Raiders.com, definitely uh, uh, exemplifies that very thing. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor, uh, brought to you by Tequila Embajador. Appreciate you sticking with us uh, today from 4 to 6 p.m. Um, looking at a uh, really interesting article by Bill Williamson from um, Sports Nation, and he covers the Raiders and the 49ers and the Rams, does a great job, has always done a really good job. But it was interesting, an interesting concept of what he did, and he, he ranked the Raiders' newcomers in tiers. Uh, I think there were five tiers total. Uh, so one through five in terms of their importance, in terms of uh, the impact, the potential impact. Uh, and I just wanted to kind of run it by you guys. I can't disagree, honestly, with, with anything that Bill wrote, not that I was prone to doing that. Uh, but I found myself nodding yes quite a bit when I was when I was looking at that. I just wanted to run it by you guys. Tier one, uh, defensive end Yannick Ngakwe, safety Trevon Moreg, and uh, running back Kenyon Drake. And I'm glad that he brought up Kenyon Drake. Uh, got an email from a Raiders fan over the weekend sort of complaining about the Kenyon Drake uh, signing. Uh, there was somebody at ESPN, I think Bill Barnwell, um, in his – what went right, what went wrong, assessment of teams across the NFL. Kenyon Drake was what went wrong with the Raiders offseason. And um, I think he had uh, Bill Barnwell had the Raiders ranked last um, in terms of uh, you know, offseason additions and subtractions and all that. And, you know, so I guess my – first of all, if Kenyon Drake was what went wrong – with the Raiders offseason, then that means that other things went right, you know. Uh, and I, I have felt all along, it doesn't take a Vince Lombardi to figure this one out, the Raiders' main issue was defense. So, and even in Bill Barnwell's um, critique, Yannick Ngagwe being kind of a bargain was part of what went right for the Raiders. Uh, the Kenyon Drake signing, obviously it caught people by surprise, and, you know, you can quibble about the money that was, that was uh, given to him. Uh, most of the money, the uh, bigger portion of his two-year contract gets pushed to next year when there's more salary cap uh, available. It's meaningless uh, to me. It, the Kenyon Drake signing didn't prevent the Raiders from doing, uh, you know, accomplishing their other goals, uh, you know, across the rest of the roster. But also, on top of that, I think it's a mistake to classify Kenyon Drake as just the backup to Josh Jacobs, as if he's you know going to be standing on the sidelines the majority of the time. That's not what he was brought in to Las Vegas to do or to be. He is going to be a strong, strong complement to Josh Jacobs, provided he stays healthy and all of that. There's a plan for Kenyon Drake that, it, that goes beyond just being a backup running back. 
I think that's a disservice to say that the Raiders invested that kind of money in somebody that's going to be the backup running back. And, and you know, there's there's power in words and the way things are classified. Uh, so if a Panthers fan is reading that story and reads, oh, a backup running back, that much money for a backup running back, you know, if you just write it like that, that's going to have an effect. But when you peel it back a little bit, and understand that he's going to be used in a variety of different ways. He's going to be used in conjunction, conjunction uh, with Josh Jacobs. In lieu of Josh Jacobs, he's going to line up out wide. He's going to allow the Raiders um, to to go fast offensively and create matchup problems because he can line up at wide receiver. There's a, an array of ways that they plan to use him. So it's 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 not accurate to call him a backup running back if you just want to play semantics. He's going to be heavily involved in this offense. And I'm glad Bill Williamson, an astute writer, understands that. We're going to get more into uh, what Bill wrote and some of the uh, you know critiques that he had and where he fit everybody that the Raiders brought in this year in a tiered basis. Remember, tier one is defensive end Yannick Ngakwe, safety Trevon Moreg, and running back Kenyon Drake. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonson. You're brought to you by Tequila and Bahadur. <laughs> 